Welcome to the Anchored in Christ podcast. This is a place where we want to help young people draw closer to God and in doing so develop the confidence to take ownership of their journey, goals and purpose through biblical teachings and conversations. Our facilitator will be Ria Mudao and each episode she will be bringing you lessons on the Bible chapter by chapter from Genesis to Revelation. Our goal is to help you maintain or build your connection with God through His written word and to remind you of His character, His promises and your future together with Him. Thank you so much for pressing play today. Please don't forget to follow and share as this will help us grow our audience. Now let us begin. Luca 24 verse 36, I greet you all in the name of peace and welcome to today's Bible study. For those who do not know me and I am the host for today. Today we'll be unpacking the book of Numbers. We have been going on a journey, looking at the journey of the children of Israel. We have learned so many lessons from them and it has been almost like putting up a mirror to ourselves. We've seen emotions such as not trusting God. We've seen fear. We've seen despair, and today we're going to continue to unpack um, numbers by looking at chapters 31 to 36. I'm now going to hand over to Stiwoku Nene, who will lead us in prayer. Jehovah, we thank you for this time that you're giving us tonight. We thank you so much for gathering all of us to be in this place and to be part of this Bible study. We thank you for the opportunity to get to know your word better. We thank you for the opportunity to get to know your spirit better and to get to know your heart better. We pray, we invite your Holy Spirit. There is nothing that we can do in your name. We pray for wisdom, we pray for guidance, and we pray for revelation, and we pray for discernment and deeper understanding of your word. And we pray, Jehovah, for this hour, but may it have an effect, a long-lasting effect on our lives. We thank you, we glorify you, and we honor you, and we pray that you help us, that even as we speak on your word, that we may be a true representation of who you are. Amen. Thank you so much, Stiwo, for that wonderful prayer. Um, Sister, you have engaged in multiple discussions over the past few weeks, um, with some with myself and some with Ubutugo. And today we're going to engage in yet another discussion where we'll be looking at um, chapters 31 to 36. And as I mentioned earlier, reading this book was really like putting up a mirror, holding up a mirror to ourselves. And it also gives us an opportunity to really get to see a bit of God's character. In chapter 31, we get to see a side of God that we don't really talk about as Christians, a side that we don't expect to see. When God asked Moses to take vengeance against the Midianites for what they did to Shittim, do we serve a God of vengeance? And what can we learn from this chapter? Tula Sanele and everyone. Um, so yes, it has been a journey. I must say what I've gotten to 
know about myself through this is number six right now. Uh, and I think it's because it's very practical. It's stories that speak to our everyday lives, what we go through on a daily. Um, you know, it is, it is all coated in this um, stories and it looks like it's very far away from us. But when you get closer to the detail, it's actually our everyday lives. So maybe before we get to chapter 31, where are we? Um, we are ending off numbers today, but we've already studied the book of Genesis, which is the book of beginnings. We studied the book of Exodus, which was the birth of a nation. We studied the book of Leviticus, which was the law of the nation. We studied the book of Numbers, and I'll say it in past tense because I know we are about to close it off, which was the wilderness wanderings of people moving around and not knowing how to go to the promised land. And in the future, or in a few weeks to come, we are going to study the book of Detroit. So this week, we actually, at the end, Israel has been moving with Moses. Um, they've lost some of their very important people in this journey. They've lost Miriam, who was a prophetess and who wrote songs for them. They've lost Aaron, who was appointed as a high priest. They still have Moses, but they know because God has told Moses that you are not, you are not going to go into the promised land because of what you did. He's still with them in chapter 31, but he's not... Um, he is not going to go with them to the promised land. And God has made that clear to him. So when we get to chapter 31, Israel is now ready. They are at the border. Uh, they are now ready to go into the promised land. So what you see, what you ask, the question that you ask is, is uh, the one thing that a lot of people raise when they talk about chapter 31. Because what we saw in chapter 25, and I hope most of you remember, uh, when, when Israel was settling in Shittim, they actually started worshiping other gods so what happened was that God had said they must not worship and that was because of Moab and God leaves it and everything happens they move they get to the where they're about to cross and God says to Moses there's something that happened a few <laughs> weeks back I'll call it weeks there's something that happened which I was not happy with and this is Moab and I want you to go and take vengeance because of what they did. And the Bible says that God gave Moses uh, uh, rules on how they're supposed to do it. He said, out of all the 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe. So there were 12,000 men that were sent out to war. But I don't call this a normal kind of war because when you look at the requirements for this war, God said to Moses, the high priest must go. The high priest um, did not usually go to war with the people, but this time he said, the high priest must go with them. The things that they use in the temple, God said, take them with when you go to war. And, and because I want to show you that there's something that I don't like, which is idolatry. Because what, what Moab did to Israel then was they showed them this new types of gods and, you know, Israel fell for it. So it, it was not a, a normal war because then what happens the Bible says that Israel goes to war, 12,000 men go to war. And the Bible does not tell us how many Moabites they killed, but it says that every man that they fought with was killed that day and they came back as a victorious um, Israel. But when I read chapter 31, when I read chapter 31, I don't want us to dwell on, um, you know, God, the God of vengeance, because correct, we serve a God of vengeance. God, when you read, um, the book of Romans 12, and if you have a note, you can note it on your side, 
I will share the slides with all the information. The book of Romans 12, verse 19 to 21, God makes it clear. He says that I, vengeance is mine, says, the, says God. Vengeance is mine. And don't take it upon yourselves to take revenge. That is my part of the work. So there are times and instances where God will take vengeance. But the biggest lesson that I pick up in this chapter is that we serve a God that hates idolatry. We serve a God that hates it when we put our mini gods on the same pedestals with him. Because this is what made most people focus on the war and, and we missed the lesson of this chapter. God hates it when people worship idols. And God hates it when people make other people worship idols. Because you could have said, but Israel could have said no, but God punished Moab for introducing a foreign God to his people. So we may not, and you know, when we talk about something that we read about in scripture every day, but we don't hear about it in the church of Christ today. And I think we don't mention it because when you speak of idols, we're thinking of some statue or, or something that is built and we go and pray to and whatnot, but that is not it. We may not build temples or construct sacrificial platform. We're not, we may not bow down to statues and creatures, but each of us today, if we were to be honest, we have something that takes our commitment or our loyalty. There is that one thing that takes your commitment or your loyalty. It can be, you know, others are careers, others is children, uh, you know, others it's money, others it's for others it's power, but we do have that one thing that separates us from the love of God or that, that removes us. But you know, there's a, there's a saying by, by Kyle Eidelman who says that behind every sin struggle, that you and I have is a false God that is winning the war. Behind every sin struggle that you and I have is a false God that is winning the war. So it's, it's, I think the biggest lesson for me is God hates idolatry. He hates it and, and he wants to be God and he does not want to be compared with any other thing, regardless of how precious it looks. God wants to take his place. And, you know, our culture, you, you talked about, do we serve a God of, of vengeance? The one thing that we struggle with in the, in the modern, modern world is that our culture is at war with the God that we read about in the Bible. Our culture is at war with the God that is presented in the Bible. Don't fall into that trap. He's God. So many times in the book of Leviticus, when people were challenging why, and he just said, because I am God. So it's the biggest lesson that I see from 31 is uh, God wants to be on the pedestal. He belongs there and he does not want to share that stage with anything. And if it means that vengeance will come, it will. If it means that, um, you know, you are not putting God where he wants to be, where he has to be. And the last lesson that I get from chapter 31 it's towards the end when you read, I think it's pro and after 22, if I'm not mistaken, going down with 31, God says to them, everything that you got from the war, everything, because God had said, after you have worn, take the things, you know, the gold and all those precious things that they took from the Moabites. God said to them, before you distribute, before you take home, before you choose what you like, give a share to God. 
give a share to God. What I like, again, is he, he did not ask the Levites to take with. He told the people to sacrifice. So you, you receive your share and then you give it back to God because you know that victory came from God. So it's a practice that we don't want to talk about in the church today, right? People say, you know, churches, money, but that's the economy. <laughs> that's God's economy. You know, that's how it works. We have to give. And we're not, we're not giving something that is not, that does not belong to him because whatever, whatever we have, we receive from him. So we're just giving a share of what he has given to us. So in your mind, don't make it look like I'm giving him what is mine. Yeah, giving him what is his because everything belongs to him. Thank you so much, Cesaria. And I know that you said that um, only God can be the one who seeks out revenge. But is there a place for vengeance in our journeys as Christians? Can we ever go down on our knees and ask God to do that on our behalf? Ria, are you still there? I'm so sorry. Um, I was on mute. The famous, the famous line. So um, yes, I, I think there is, a, there is room, um, but <laughs> I don't want us to go that route because even if you look at how God repaid for, the, for Israel, they didn't ask for God to do it, but God knew that what, is, what Moab did was wrong. And when you read verse 35, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, will, I will repay. He sees everything. In due time, their foot will slip for their day of disaster is near and their doom is coming quickly. So God makes it very clear that vengeance is mine. And when we read the book of Romans 12, verse 19, I hope you can see the screen. Um, Paul says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And Paul Paul is talking about what we read in the book of, of, of Deuteronomy just now. So I think leave room. You asked if there's room. I would say you leave room for the wrath of God. You can pray, you can ask God, but God wants us to forgive, right? So I don't think with a bitter heart, it would mean anything to God. Um, you do it with forgiveness and leaving everything to his hands. Thank you so much, Ria. I think that concludes chapter 31 for us. And now moving on to chapter 32, we see that two and a half tribes ask Moses if they could stay on the other side of the land. And Moses then compromises, but with certain conditions. What do we learn from that story? Ria, I think we lost you again. I am so sorry. Okay, can you hear me now? Yes, we can. All right, cool. So I tried to show on the slide um, what happened, a, a picture of what happens in chapter 32. 
because what happens in chapter 32, we have two and a half tribes. That's what people call them. Um, this was the tribe of, of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. That's why you see on the slide, there's Manasseh on both sides. So what happens is these people are blessed. They have lots and lots of cattle and they are about to cross because Moses was about to, to allot the land to the different tribes. So they go to Moses and I'll read from 32 verse one, Numbers 32 verse one. Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So they were rich. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the Lord land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock. The sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came, to sp came and spoke to Moses and Eliezer, the high priest, and to the leaders of the congregation. And they said, before the congregation of Israel is a land of livestock. They, they're not yet in the promised land, but they are on their way. That They've conquered this land of the Moabites. And, and your servants have livestock, they said. If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants and as possessions. Do not take us across the Jordan. So these people are saying, we are too blessed. We have so much. And we think we don't want to go on to the promised land. We, looking at where we are, we should be fine. And this takes you back. I mean, we've seen such things where, when Abraham had to look at the land between what he chose and what Lot chose. What, what Lot chose looked way better than what Abraham chose because Abraham said to Lot, look, look across. What do you want? Choose what you think is right. He chose what he thought was right just by looking at it. And we know what he chose, right? He chose Sodom and Gomorrah. So they did. Moses, yeah, we like it here. Um, we, we're not going on. We, we don't want to go on, just allot this land to us. The Bible says that um, Moses said to the people, he was worried with reason. He was worried. He said, shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? And this is because they still had to fight the Canaanites because God had said, when you get to the promised land, I still want you to fight the Canaanites and remove everyone. So Moses was worried that if we leave you guys here, how are your brothers going to conquer the land? And the other thing that Moses says, he says, why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? So Moses knew because, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to call it peer pressure, but you know, when a door is opened, uh, people start coming in. When we read from one to six, it is, it tells us about the camp of the tribe of Gad and the tribe of Reuben goes down. When you read towards the end of chapter 32, you see now that the tribe of Manasseh starts saying, this looks nice. So when you open a door, I think this is what Moses did not want because he didn't want it to get to a point where, you know, everyone is now wanting this opportunity to stay outside the promised land. And Moses knew that this was going to happen. And Moses says to them, your fathers did this when I sent them to Kadesh Paneh to see the land. They did this because they did not trust God. They, they said they are giants and everything, and they refused to go into the promised land. So Moses did not want this right from the beginning when the people asked. They pushed for it, and they got what they asked for. You know, And there's a lot of, of scholars that say that land was also conquered and whatnot, but it was not. 
it was not within the boundaries of what God had said um, is going to be given to Israel. And we see it. We see it when you when we study the book of Joshua, you're going to start seeing it because those people were a little bit far from where the temple was. They were a little bit far from where the tabernacle was. So when we read the book of Joshua 22, you're going to see the same group, Gad, Reuben, Manasseh, they're going to come back to, to Joshua, who is going to be their leader at that point, and say, can we build a new altar? Can we build a new altar right next to the Jordan, right next to Canaan? Because we, we want a closer place, you know? So you, you see that the compromise pushes pushes for even more things that they did not think they will need at this point. And the reason was that they didn't see it because God sees the future. And, and when you go down with the book of Joshua 22, I know we'll study it when we get there, but you will see how the other tribes of Israel that are inside the promised land will say, no, you cannot build a new altar because the Bible says that they had built a better and bigger altar and everyone in the promised land thought, no, you cannot do this. So it, it starts causing problems. So compromise, there are times when God allows for compromise. We've seen it so many times in the Bible. We saw it with Moses when Moses said, I can't go alone. Give me an Aaron. So when God says, give them what they want, it is not always what you expect it to be. We know what happened with Moses and Aaron along the way. We know what happened when the Israelites complained so much for, for quail and manna. We know what happened. They ate it and they died. We know what happened when Balaam compromised, when he saw the angel of God saying, you cannot go and curse Israel because they are a blessed nation. The Bible says that Balaam don't say, can I go? Then God said, all right, you can go. But we know what happened when, we go, when he got there. And these tribes are going to see the same thing. They are going to see the same thing. And when, when we read, uh, you know, the book of Kings, you will see when we start reading the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, they, they will be there. There is a time that God will even say, when you read the book of First Chronicles, First Chronicles 5 verse 26, so the God of Israel, and I'm reading from NIV, the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, the, the spirit of Tilgath, king of Assyria, and he took them into Israel, the Reubenites, the Gedites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and brought them into Hara. So there were times, even when there was war, there's a lot of times they were the ones to be attacked first because they found themselves right at the border so it's it's you know and, and bringing it to our everyday life um they were one foot in one foot out which is what we do on a daily right um you know living on the east of the jordan was living on the edge of the promise it was it was living with one foot in the lord's will and the other outside god's will and it is us every day so i think it's it's more of looking at how many things do we compromise in our daily lives and, and say, but God will understand. And even if he does and he compromises, what impact does it have in our lives in the future, which we do not know? So it is not about the land and the promises. I think the biggest thing is the compromises that we make. There's a bigger impact outside um, what we see experience. That the last thing, you know, that, that I, I notice with them 
the the Reubenites, the Gedites, and the and and the half tribe of Manasseh, they fade out of the record. You see them fading out. When you read about what was happening in Israel, those are the tribes that faded out because they were outside. They were living outside the promise. So the lesson is when God says, do what they are, do what they want, it does not always mean it will go the way that we expect it to go. Thank you so much, Ria. And I guess when I was thinking about the two and a half tribe, it just got me reflecting and thinking about the number of times God gives us a vision and he shows us the destination, but we get distracted along the way or we, we lose sight of what God wants from us and where he wants us to be. And I guess this, this chapter allows us to reflect on that and to ask ourselves, what does God want from me? Where does God want me to go? And I know like whenever you go on social media as well, you get to see a lot of travel content. That's something that is um, very out there right now. And a lot of us do love traveling and when you travel, you plan, you think about what you're going to do when you get there. And we see that also in chapter 33, uh, where we see the, the itinerary for the children of Israel. And my question then becomes, what do we learn from this chapter? Because I know that everything in the Bible has a purpose and someone might just think it's just an itinerary, but I'm sure there's a deeper meaning and a lesson behind it. True, right. So, so chapter 33, it, it does look like, you know, one of those, I'll take this, I'll take that, I'll take, and it looks like a repeat. So chapter 36 starts with, you know, this travel log. It traces Israel's journey from, from slavery because it takes you all the way from when they were um, in slavery. It takes you through the wilderness. It takes you through the banks of Jordan and it takes you out to, to enter the, the promised land. Um, you know, recounting Israel's travel shows that God is faithful for, for them. You know, when, when we look at it as, um, uh, you know, emotionally detached, because most of us are not, you know, we're not from those tribes. So we're a bit emotionally detached. But when you look at it from, from a Jewish person and, and what they went through, everything from crossing of the Red Sea, you see that it shows that God was honest. God was faithful. Whatever he said, I will do. He did. He promised to bring them out of Egypt. And he promised to take them to the promised land. And what this is what you see when you read through uh, the itinerary, like he say, you know, but, but the names, these names that we read, they went to this place, they went to this place. They don't cast images on our minds because it's the history that we are not attached to. And, and you know, the sad thing is chances are the people that um, Moses is speaking to at this time as well, Chances are they don't know because we know that only two people out of the 600,000 that is standing in front of him was there, only Joshua and Caleb. The rest of them are their children, new generations and new generations. So, you know, the problem, the problem with history is that, um, you know, it is not always well remembered, even when it is properly documented, because for Israel, clearly it was properly documented. That's why it is very important, especially for us that read the Bible, to have a, a new meaning, to know God your way, 
because this history at times it just feels like okay and then they cross the red sea but it does not leave any impact if if you know the the spirit must must do something in you so that you understand but most of the time you can just read it as history but there are a lot of lessons you know because the passage if you look at the passage it lists um the camps the mara the water the water the rephidim the springs at rephidim and they get to Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, the taking of the covenant, the covenant, the Ten Commandments, you know, the cloud, the building of the tabernacle. It's taking you through all those camps. And then in the middle, you find Sinai, obviously, and then at the end, who a, a message of what must happen in the future. So chapter 33 in itself, it is not just the camps and every you know, thing that they go through. There's a lot of lessons in chapter three, chapter 33, and I, it, it has to do with the instructions, the instruction that God gives to Israel. Because after everything, God gives three sets of instructions, and all of them had to do with Israel going into the land. The first thing he says, when you get to the land, drive out all the inhabitants of the land. Anyone that you find there, drive them out because they have a power. They have a power of showing you their gods. We know that that doesn't happen. And we'll see when you study the book of, of Joshua, it doesn't happen. We learn through the, rest of the, through the rest of the Bible that Israel did not obey what God said they must do. And you know, study, when you study the areas where there is war between, you know, it can be Israel, Palestine and all that, those are the places where they did not drive out the inhabitants as they were told. And you'll see it. I'll show that when we study the book of Joshua. So it is, the impact is still seen today. Today, they are still fighting because they did not do what God said they must do when they got to the land. Drive out the inhabitants of the land because they will fight you. There will be a problem. That did not happen and even today, it seems like we cannot solve the problem or they cannot solve the problem. So I think the biggest thing is it is good to go, to go back and check what did God say. But it is also good. It is also good to take the instructions. How are we going to manage this going forward so that it goes God's way? Um, you know, that's, it's, that's why it's very important to have the older people um, in our midst because they are the ones that God, they are the ones that show us the wisdom of God. And, and that is what happens. It is an itinerary, yes, of what they went through, but it is, it shows that God was faithful and whatever he said he will do, he did. And it also gives instructions and it shows that because they did not do what God said they must do, even today, they're still fighting in the land, which was supposed to be a promise to them. Thank you so much, Rian. Like you said, God is a God of instructions. And it's so beautiful how God still gives us clear instructions today. I and mean, we see this as well in chapter 34, when God gives the children of Israel instructions and commands regarding the apportionment. So why does God do this? What is the significance behind these bits of instruction? So it was very clear. Um, God was very clear. Uh, to Moses and you know we read about the daughters of Zelophehad 
last week, two weeks ago, three weeks, I'm not sure, where, where God was even uh, changing the laws, at least an apportionment in the land. But God was, God has boundaries. God has boundaries. And, and most of the time, uh, as people, we question, the, we question those boundaries because we do, we do not understand. You know, and the sad thing is, God does not always tell us the why. He tells us, this is how you're supposed to do it. Same with them. He did not tell them why. Okay, for them, yes, he did tell them because these people will will, um, make you uh, worship their gods. But he did not tell them how far this is going to go. So even with boundaries, God was very clear. When you get to chapter 34, chapter 34, God was very clear to say, who is going to take this part of the land? Who is going to do this? Who is going to do that? And I think the same applies to our lives. As much as we feel like we have control over our lives, there are certain boundaries that God puts in our lot. We do not follow those boundaries. It has, there's things that go wrong in our lives. But in chapter 34, outside the boundaries, what I see I would say 50% of chapter 34 does not have to do with the boundaries, but it has to do with the people that ensure that the boundaries are the, the boundaries are respected, which was the priests, which was the priests, which I think it's our, it's because we know the book of Second Peter says that we are now priests. God said to, to Israel, to Moses, these are the boundaries. After saying that these are the boundaries, he started commanding that, all right, this is what is going to happen. But Eliezer, the high priest, this is what you must do. This, Lev this Levitical house, this is what they must do. Most of the part, most of what we read about in chapter 34 is the people that are ensuring that the boundaries are being respected. And it, it is our lives as well. Uh, the boundaries are there. The word of God is there. But it is the people, which is us, that call ourselves priests today. How do we ensure that the boundaries that God put in our lives are respected? The boundaries that God put when it comes to the word of God, how do we ensure? They were the ones that did more work because they had to elect leaders, but most of the work was done by the people. So I see it as a, yes, there are rules on what must be done, but if the are not doing it, then the word of God is still disrespected. If you and I don't do what the word says or what the boundaries say, you know, this is where you go, this is where you stop. People still don't see the power of God. People still don't see the greatness of God because the, the rules and the boundaries, are, everyone is trampling on them. God set a standard and he gave the general rules. But those that have to operate the rules were the ones that were most important in chapter 34, because where they missed it, that is where the boundary was null and void. You know, it, it was not, it did not help them in any way in those instances. So it's not the boundary that is more important because it's there, it's out there. It is the people that enforce the boundary that God is speaking to when you read the book of chapter 34, chapter 30, and go back, just go back and read chapter 34 and you will see that it's a one line where he says, this uh, Caleb is going to get this part of the land, but this priest must do this. This person must do this. This person must do that. Most of the work was through the people.
now to three when we get to chapter 35. You know, I, I don't know God to be a contradictory God. I don't know him to be someone who contradicts themselves. But in chapter 35, God talks about Levitical cities and he talks about cities of refuge. But did God not say that the Levites will not inherit the land? And I guess the other question should then be, what is a city of refuge? Correct. In chapter 18, if I'm not mistaken, God said, um, the Levites are not going to inherit any land. He said that they are going to inherit, um, uh, you know, anything that has to be, to do with the with the tabernacle and the sanctuary. And he said that it's because they are responsible for it. But if you, when you study chapter 35, 34 and 35, which I will put them, to, we read about the towns of Levites as well as the cities of refuge. The cities were not, um, they did not get properties. They didn't, they could not um, have, they did not take part in the everyday economy. It was not properties, businesses and, and whatnot. They were just given land where they could live. And the reason why they were given that land they could, where they could live was because God made it clear that Israel is going to be scattered across all these different cities that, you know, has been allotted to them. but between you know in in whatever city that you had you had to give a piece of land to a levite and this was because they were going to be responsible for the worship and the sacrifices and anything that has to do with god in your daily lives so god did not just give them cities and say it's all kumbaya you can go and have fun no he said no i'm going to give you a city but in that city i'm going to you are going to allot land to the Levites, and they are going to stay that every, whatever you do, there is always someone from a, that will assist from a worship or, or, a, or a tabernacle, sacrificial, all those things that they had to do. And I think for that just reminds us how God does not expect us, expect us to go, you know, just living on normally and forgetting the, the things that have to do with spirituality in our lives, because we forget. It gets so busy that most of us even forget that, you know, everything revolves around God. And he made that a point when he gave them the land that you are taking the land, but I am going to make sure that they're Levites. So if you look at the Levites were given 48 cities, they were given 48 cities and, and the cities were given um, the number of, of, of Levitical cities in those tribes dependent on the number of people in each tribe. For example, if you look at Judah in this number, and they had a lot of Levitical cities that they needed because the, the more you are, the more issues we're going to have. So it was purely on the basis of they will get places where they can live. They were even allowed, because you will see when we start studying um, the book of Samuel and whatnot, they were even allowed to, you know, they can have food and whatnot, but they could not form part of the daily economy because they were responsible for the tabernacle of God. So God did not change his word. The Levitical city is, cities is what God, God said to them, to the tribes of Israel. This is what you're supposed to give to the, to the, to the Levites and they are going to stay amongst you so that they take care of everything that has to do with spirituality. And it was a reminder 
of we cannot go about living life every day forgetting about our spirituality. It is part of who we are. And the same thing that we saw in chapter 31, uh, um, give, give to, to God a, a, a 10% of what you got from the war. The same thing happened here. God allocated the land and he said to Reuben, this is your land, Gad, this is your land. Naphtali, this is your land. Isaac, Manasseh, Ephraim. And when he was done, he said to them, each one of you, the heads of the tribes, you are going to sit down and you are going to give back to the Levites. You are going to give back. He, he never forced anyone, but he said, and that is how God works. I will give it to you in full and you will give back what is due to me. And that was God wanted from them. And that is why we had Levitical cities. And then you ask of a very um, beautiful uh, term that probably one of the best things um, I like about the book of Numbers uh, because it is a prophecy of Christ um, hidden in all these laws and the giving of the law. So what, what happens in chapter 35? God says to Moses, Moses, 48 cities will be given to the children of Israel, to the Levites, I'm sorry. And those 48 cities, will it, it's where the Levites are going to reside amongst the children of Israel. But out of those 48 cities, six cities, they are going to be called the cities of refuge. And here are the laws. And God says, um, this six cities, and I'll read, this six cities, shall be for refuge for people of Israel and for the stranger amongst them that anyone who kills any person without any intent may flee there. The cities were not just and that, you know, when you read a law and it starts talking about it is open to all, study that text. It has something to do with Christ. And that was one of the rules. The city of refuge, it is open for all. Anyone that has killed someone by mistake, anyone that makes a mistake and today we would call it culpable homicide, can run to the city of refuge. And when that person gets to the city of refuge, the one that has been wronged, the avenger of blood, once you go into the city of refuge, the person that is running after you cannot do anything to you once you are inside. So the rule was, you must be able to run as fast as you can to the city of refuge. I probably would not have made it there on time, but if you run as fast as you can, the person that is running behind you does not have power to take revenge once you are inside the city of refuge. The city of refuge belonged to the Levites. So they were the ones, the Bible says that they were the ones that were standing by the gates to accept, to, you know, to take these people in that had done wrong so that they can be safe in the city of refuge. So it was the, the 12 tribes, as I said, the 12 tribes were given a portion, but there was this small little places which were called the city of refuge. They were special to the Israelites. When you study Jewish um, history, they were very special because they gave 
so in, in terms of the law, and you must understand, right, those days, there were no policemen or the law that says you go before the court. If you, and, and we know what the law used to say, eye for an eye, you kill, I'm going to kill you. But at times, it was really a mistake. When you get to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses even gives them those instances where it can be a mistake. How do you save a person that did that? They run to the city of refuge. They explain to the priest, this is what happened. They are kept in there. But look at this. The law of the city of refuge used to say, and please read this part when you're, you know, when we are done with this, the law of the city of refuge used to say that um, if you are found to have done wrong, you will only be released from the city of refuge when the high priest dies. And already you know who our high priest is. You will only be released when the high priest died. When the high priest was still alive, you stayed. You did not have a to stay in the city. It was the only place. It was the only place where you were saved. And, and we know that what that means because the book of Hebrews 2 verse 17 says, Jesus is our merciful, faithful high priest and his death provides our freedom. And the book of John 8, verse 36 says, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed, just as the high priest was anointed with the oil prior to his death. So it is, we know that it is um, Christ. And, and when we read the book of Hebrews, if I'm not mistaken, it's Hebrews 6. Paul explains it really well. He explains it really well to say that we have now gotten our city of refuge. We cannot leave that city of refuge because that is where we are kept safe and that is under Christ. So it is one of those things with the Old Testament where it looked like a law, but now because we understand, now because we have read the book of Hebrews that talks about the high priest, now because we have read all these books, we understand that the city of refuge still exists for us today. And that salvation is in Christ. It is, and, and you know, as I was studying through it, I thought the cities of refuge don't, don't exist physically today. But we know that as priests, we as priests, we are supposed to be those people that take people in. Can, can are we approachable by those that are running away from the world? Are we approachable by, by those that are saying, I need a place to go to? Are we those kind of people, those priests that were standing by the gate saying, it does not matter what you have done, you are going to salvation. Are we those people? Are we those cities? Because we carry the badge of we are Christians, but are we really those cities of refuge for a lot of people? And the, the reverse applies. Are we really utilizing the refuge that we get from Christ? Because most of us wander and we, we are lost, but there is a door which leads us to the city of refuge. It is a beautiful, beautiful section on the, in the book of Numbers that take time to read it and, and link it to the book of Judges. And I'll, I'll note uh, for you guys on the slides and you will see how this is Christ written all over. 
the book of Numbers. And we have the privilege today of understanding that this, is, this, was a, this was a prophecy leading to the city of refuge that we have today. Thanks. Thank you so much, Sifria. And earlier today, I said that we are going to look at a bit of God's character and who God is. And we've looked at whether God is a God of vengeance. We've looked at God and the strict instructions that he gives his people. And I guess for me, I've always told myself that God is also a planner and he's a God who knows all, who never makes any mistakes. But, the, but chapter 35 then makes you wonder, can God make a mistake? In chapter 35, we studied, we studied about the daughters of Zelophehad in chapter 27, where God allowed for the amendments of the law to cater for families that do not have a son or a male heir. But then we begin to start seeing cracks in this amendment and we serve a God who knows all. So did he not know that there would be these cracks? We, we do. We really serve a God that knows all. And I, this is one of the... Um, I talked about case studies. The book of Numbers has a lot of case studies because when, when they were sitting down and the law be, was being given to them, uh, they did not know how this law was going to be applied. It was do this, do this, do this, do that. And when they started applying the law, uh, they started seeing, you know, there's a little bit of unfairness. And what I love about Moses is he never turned those people back. Every time when they went to him and said, Moses, this law does not cater for us. He always went back to God and said, God, what do I do in this case? He did this for the daughters of Zelophehad. When we read, it must be chapter 25, if I'm not mistaken. They went to Moses, very brave young woman, um, you know, and speaking to the ladies, it, it is a good thing to be brave, but it is beautiful to what fight they went to the high priest. We know where we have to go to when we, we're not clear about certain things. And they did that. They went to the high priest who was, who was Eliezer, one of Eliezer's first, first assignments. And they said, we're not going to, our father did not give birth to a, child, to a son. And in terms of the law, if there is no son in that family, we cannot inherit the land that belongs to our father. And they stated their case. And they said, our father did not die because he did anything wrong like those of Korah. He died a good man, but God did not give him sons. And God, the Bible says that Moses went back to God and said, God, here is a case that makes sense. And God said, the daughters are right. They should not lose out on the land just because their father did not have a son. And God said to Moses, allow them to have this um, land. They can inherit the land. And now it got to a point, I think the ladies wanted to get married. Now here am I, I own the land. Um, it belongs to my family. And you saw how the, Lord, the land was allotted, right? So the one thing about the land that we see, they did not own the land. The land was leased. The land belonged to God. Because what happened was um, they would sell and they would do things and they would get married. But in the year of Jubilee, after 50 years, the land went back to its owners. So it, it, the land belonged to God. And that was the standard of the law. When, when they went to, when they started getting the land and they started getting married. I think they were about to get married and, and the, the, they were, the daughters of Zelophehad were from the tribe of Manasseh. They were from the tribe of Manasseh. Now the, the tribe of Manasseh was starting to lose pieces of 
families that are married are taking their land to their new family homes. Now this man go to Moses and say, you allowed the ladies to inherit land. And now we are losing out on our land because now they're getting married and going away with it. And uh, Moses says to them, it is fine. And he goes back to God and God says, all right, it is valid. And he just amends the law to say, whoever that is in the situation of the daughters of Zelophehad, whoever that is in the situation and the father does not have a land, they cannot move the land. And we talked about boundaries. It was very strict on who the land belongs to. They must get married within the tribe of Manasseh. I like how you know, God says to Moses, they can marry whoever they want, but it must be with, within the tribe of Manasseh. I do not think God made a mistake. I do not think God made a mistake. And, and if you look at the first law that said that he protected the tribes from this, what is happening right now. So where God allowed for them to start inheriting. So I think the mistake happened with the amendments of the law because the, the first one was perfect, even though, you know, it was going to impact on the ladies, but that was not going to allow the land to go to other tribes. So when God allowed for an amendment, that amendment then led to another amendment. So I don't think it was a mistake. Um, it is one of those things where it was amended and it led to further gaps. Um, and, and I always say, maybe Moses did not ask all the questions, right? Because he just got to God and said, uh, can they give the land? Can they inherit land? And God said, yes. And I guess he did not ask at that point. And what if they get married? Because he didn't think about it. So it's just one of those things that happened. God does not make mistakes. Um, we, we serve a perfect God. And he knew um, what was going to happen. But I love the fact that he went back and he allowed Moses to amend the laws to suit the people and so that there's no fights amongst the Israelites. Thank you so much, Ria. Could you please just give us a one-minute summary of all the lessons that we have learned thus far? Ooh. Book of Numbers. Um, I talked about, I think the one, the thing about the book of Numbers is we have a lot of types of Christ, uh, which we see. And, and you know, it, it is something that we studied with time. Um, and we know I'm showing right now on the screen, the book of First Corinthians 10, verse 11, which I love very much. It says, now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Those things that we read in the Bible, the book of Numbers and all the other verses so that we can learn, so that we can know God better, so that we can understand his character, so that we can, we can deal with a God that, you know, we understand how he works. And looking at the book of Numbers, the best lesson that I got was the cross in the wilderness where, um, you know, God, set up the camps and you find this is this is in number numbers two where he set up the camps and he gave them the numbers of this is how they must be structured as the the nation of israel and if you were to look from the top like balaam balaam stood on the mountain and he looked up at israel and what you could see was a cross that cross did not make sense to the israelites at that point but now we know that all the tribes that cross and the tabernacle in the middle, we know what it means for us um, in this day and age. So I like the types, the the how God shows Christ in all the scriptures that 
doors. I also like the type of the brazen serpent where God said to Moses, the people were dying. God said to Moses, these people are only going to be healed if Moses uh, makes a brazen serpent and he puts it on a pole. The law that God gave to Moses, God said, hold it up. And anyone, anyone that looks up on the brazen serpent will be healed. I love, I love how Nicodemus goes to Christ and asks him questions about, um, about uh, him. Who are you? Where are you in the scripture? Are you the Messiah? And Christ takes Nicodemus back when we read the book of John 3, the, the book of John 3, 14. Christ says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, the son of man must be lifted up. I love how, you know, he, he takes us back to the Old Testament. He takes Nicodemus back to what he knows, that it is, I was, uh, that praise bronze serpent that Moses made for the people. And the rule, I love the rule that God gave to Moses. God said, anyone, anyone that looks up to it will be saved. If you don't, it's your loss. But if you want to be healed, look up to the cross. It is in the book of Numbers, in between the laws, in between the complaints, in between the punishments, we see God giving them a picture of Christ. And the last one is what we discussed today, which is the city of refuge, which is Christ, who is our city of refuge. Thanks. Thank you so much to all of those who joined us. And I hope that you were able to learn a thing or two today and you were able to take something with you from the book of Numbers. Please do join us as we tackle the book of Deuteronomy next week. I would now like to hand over to Uspiwo, who will lead us in closing prayer. Jehovah, we come to you at this time and we thank you so much for the wisdom that you have shared between us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for understanding and we thank you for getting us closer to you through this Bible study session that we've just had. We thank you for your revelation and we thank you for your kindness. And we pray at this time, and analyzing your word and getting to know you better. May it help us. To pray that is embedded in every bit of your word. May it be upon us and may it be upon our entire lives. We honor you and we love you. And we love listening to your word. We love coming together and just speaking about your word. And we thank you for yet another opportunity. And we pray that you sustain us in all the days. We sustain us in your word and you sustain us within the realm of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you give us a productive week. You give us a blessed week and that you continue to walk with us in our different journeys of our lives. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.